Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 21. Beyond the Black River. Part 2 of 2. Chapter 5. Which way is the river? Balthus was confused. We don't dare try for the river now, grunted Conan. The woods between the village and the river are swarming with warriors. Come on, we'll head in the last direction they'll expect us to go. West. Looking back as they entered the thick growth, Balthus beheld the wall dotted with black heads as the savages peered over. The picks were bewildered. They had not gained the wall in time to see the fugitives take cover. They had rushed to the wall expecting to repel an attack in force. They had seen the body of the dead warrior, but no enemy was in sight. Balthus realized that they did not yet know their prisoner had escaped. From other sounds, he believed that the warriors, directed by the shrill voice of Zogarsag, were destroying the wounded serpent with arrows. The monster was out of the shaman's control. A moment later, the quality of the yells was altered. Screeches of rage rose in the night. Conan laughed grimly. He was leading Balthus along a narrow trail that ran west under the black branches, stepping as swiftly and surely as if he trod a well-lighted thoroughfare. Balthus stumbled after him, guiding himself by feeling the dense wall on either hand. They'll be after us now. Zoga's discovered your gun, and he knows my head wasn't in the pile before the altar hut. The dog! If I'd had another spear, I'd have thrown it through him before I struck the snake. Keep to the trail. They can't track us by torchlight, and there are a score of paths leading from the village. They'll follow those leading to the river first, throw a cordon of warriors for miles along the bank, expecting us to try to break through. We won't take to the woods until we have to. We can make better time on this trail. Now buckle down to it and run as you never ran before. They got over their panic cursed quick panted Balthus, complying with a fresh burst of speed. They're not afraid of anything very long, grunted Conan. For a space, nothing was said between them. The fugitives devoted all their attention to covering distance. They were plunging deeper and deeper into the wilderness and getting farther away from civilization at every step, but Balthus did not question Conan's wisdom. The Cimmerian presently took time to grunt, when we're far enough away from the village, we'll swing back to the river in a big circle. No other village within miles of Guawela. All the picks are gathered in that vicinity. We'll circle wide around them. They can't track us until daylight. They'll pick up our path then, but before dawn, we'll leave the trail and take to the woods. They plunged on. The yells died out behind them. Balthus's breath was whistling through his teeth. He felt a pain in his side, and running became torture. He blundered against the bushes on each side of the trail. Conan pulled up suddenly, turned and stared back down the dim path. Somewhere the moon was rising, a dim white glow amidst the tangle of branches. Shall we take to the woods? panted Balthus. Give me your axe, murmured Conan softly. Something is close behind us. Then we'd better leave the trail, exclaimed Balthus. Conan shook his head and drew his companion into a dense thicket. The moon rose higher, making a dim light in the path. We can't fight the whole tribe, whispered Balthus. 
No human being could have found our trail so quickly or followed us so swiftly, muttered Conan. Keep silent. There followed a tense silence in which Balthus felt that his heart could be heard pounding for miles away. Then abruptly, without a sound to announce its coming, a savage head appeared in the dim path. Balthus' heart jumped into his throat. At first glance, he feared to look upon the awful head of the saber-tooth. But this head was smaller, more narrow. It was a leopard which stood there, snarling silently and glaring down the trail. What wind there was was blowing toward the hiding men, concealing their scent. The beast lowered his head and snuffed the trail, then moved forward uncertainly. A chill played down Balthus' spine. The brute was undoubtedly trailing them. And it was suspicious. It lifted its head, its eyes glowing like balls of fire, and growled low in its throat. And at that instant, Conan hurled the axe. All the weight of arm and shoulder was behind the throw, and the axe was a streak of silver in the dim moon. Almost before he realized what had happened, Balthus saw the leopard rolling on the ground in its death throes, the handle of the axe standing up from its head. The head of the weapon had split its narrow skull. Conan bounded from the bushes, wrenched his axe free and dragged the limp body in among the trees, concealing it from the casual glance. Now let's go and go fast, he grunted, leading the way southward, away from the trail. There'll be warriors coming after that cat. As soon as he got his wits back, Zoga sent him after us. The Picts would follow him, but he'd leave them far behind. He'd circle the village until he hit our trail, and then come after us like a streak. They couldn't keep up with him, but they'll have an idea as to our general direction. They'd follow, listening for his cry. Well, they won't hear that, but they'll find the blood on the trail and look around and find the body in the brush. They'll pick up our spore there if they can. Walk with care. He avoided clinging briars and low-hanging branches effortlessly, gliding between trees without touching the stems, and always planting his feet in the places calculated to show least evidence of his passing. But with Balthus, it was slower, more laborious work. No sound came from behind them. They had covered more than a mile when Balthus said, The Zoga Sag catch leopard cubs and train them for bloodhounds. Conan shook his head. That was a leopard, he called out of the woods. But, Balthus persisted, if he can order the beasts to do his bidding, why doesn't he rouse them all and have them after us? The forest is full of leopards. Why send only one after us? Conan did not reply for a space, and when he did, it was with a curious reticence. He can't command all the animals, only such as remember Jebel Sag. Jebel Sag. Balthus repeated the ancient name hesitantly. He'd never heard it spoken more than three or four times in his whole life. Once all living things worshipped him. That was long ago, when beasts and men spoke one language. Men have forgotten him, even the beasts forget, only a few remember. The men who remember Jebel Sag and the beasts who remember are brothers and speak the same tongue. Balthus did not reply. He had strained at a Pictish stake and seen the nighted jungle give up its fanged horrors at a shoreman's call. Civilized men laugh, said Conan, but not one can tell me how Zogasag can call pythons and tigers and leopards out of the wilderness and make them do his bidding. They would say it is a lie if they dared. That's the way with civilized men. When they can't explain something by their half-baked science, they refuse to believe it. The people on the Turon were closer to the primitive than most Aquilonians. Superstitions persisted. 
whose sources were lost in antiquity, and Balthus had seen that which still prickled his flesh. He could not refute the monstrous thing which Conan's words implied. I've heard that there's an ancient grove sacred to Jebel Sag somewhere in this forest, said Conan. I don't know. I've never seen it, but more beasts remember in this country than any I've ever seen. Then others will be on our trail? They are now, was Conan's disquieting answer. Zoga would never leave our tracking to one beast alone. What are we to do then? asked Balthus uneasily, grasping his axe as he stared at the gloomy arches above him. His flesh crawled with the momentary expectation of ripping talons and fangs leaping from the shadows. Wait. Conan turned, squatted, and with his knife began scratching a curious symbol in the mould. Stooping to look at it over his shoulder, Balthus felt a crawling of the flesh along his spine. He knew not why. He felt no wind against his face, but there was a rustling of leaves above them, and a weird moaning swept gustily through the branches. Conan glanced up inscrutably, then rose and stood staring somberly down at the symbol he had drawn. "'What is it?' whispered Balthus. It looked archaic and meaningless to him. He supposed that it was his ignorance of artistry which prevented his identifying it as one of the conventional designs of some prevailing culture. But had he been the most erudite artist in the world, he would have been no nearer the solution. I saw it carved in the rock of a cave no human had visited for a million years, muttered Conan in the uninhabited mountains beyond the sea of Vilayette, half a world away from this spot. Later, I saw a black witchfinder of Kush scratch it in the sand of a nameless river. He told me part of its meaning. It's sacred to Jebel Sag and the creatures which worship him. Watch. They drew back among the dense foliage, some yards away, and waited in tense silence. To the east drums muttered, and somewhere to north and west other drums answered. Balthus shivered, though he knew long miles of black forest separated him from the grim beaters of those drums, whose dull pulsing was a sinister overture that set the dark stage for bloody drama. Balthus found himself holding his breath. Then, with a slight shaking of the leaves, the bushes parted and a magnificent panther came into view. The moonlight dappling through the leaves shone on its glossy coat, rippling with the play of the great muscles beneath it. With its head low, it glided toward them. It was smelling out their trail. Then it halted as if frozen, its muzzle almost touching the symbol cut in the mould. For a long space, it crouched motionless. It flattened its long body and laid its head on the ground before the mark. And Balthus felt the short hairs stir on his scalp, for the attitude of the great carnivore was one of awe and adoration. Then the panther rose and backed away carefully, belly almost to the ground. With his hindquarters among the bushes, he wheeled as if in sudden panic and was gone like a flash of dappled light. Balthus mopped his brow with a trembling hand and glanced at Conan. The barbarian's eyes were smouldering with fires that never lit the eyes of men bred to the ideas of civilization. In that instant, he was all wild and had forgotten the man at his side. In his burning gaze, Balthus glimpsed and vaguely recognized pristine images and half-embodied memories, shadows from life's dawn, forgotten and repudiated by sophisticated races, ancient primeval phantasms, unnamed and nameless. Then the deeper fires were masked, and Conan was silently leading the way deeper into the forest. We've no more to fear from the beasts, he said after a while. 
but we've left a sign for men to read. They won't follow our trail very easily, and until they find that symbol, they won't know for sure we've turned south. Even then, it won't be easy to smell us out without the beasts to aid them, but the woods south of the trail will be full of warriors looking for us. If we keep moving after daylight, we'll be sure to run into some of them. As soon as we find a good place, we'll hide and wait until another night to swing back and make the river. We've got to warn Volanus, but it won't help him any if we get ourselves killed. Warn Volanus? Hell, the woods along the river are swarming with picks. That's why they got us. Zoga's brewing war magic. No mere raid this time. He's done something no Pict has done in my memory. United as many as fifteen or sixteen clans. His magic did it. They'll follow a wizard farther than they will a war chief. You saw the mob in the village, and there were hundreds hiding along the riverbank that you didn't see. More coming, from the farther villages. He'll have at least three thousand fighting men. I lay in the bushes and heard their talk as they went past. They mean to attack the fort. When, I don't know, but Zoga doesn't dare delay long. He's gathered them and whipped them into a frenzy. If he doesn't lead them into battle quickly, they'll fall to quarreling with one another. They're like blood-mad tigers. I don't know whether they can take the fort or not. Anyway, we've got to get back across the river and give the warning. The settlers on the Velitrium Road must either get into the fort or back to Velitrium. While the Picts are besieging the fort, war parties will range the road far to the east, might even cross Thunder River and raid the thickly settled country behind Velitrium. As he talked, he was leading the way deeper and deeper into the ancient wilderness. Presently, he grunted with satisfaction. They had reached a spot where the underbrush was more scattered and an outcropping of stone was visible, wandering off southward. Balthus felt more secure as they followed it. Not even a Pict could trail them over naked rock. How did you get away? he asked presently. Conan tapped his mail shirt and helmet. If more borderers would wear harness, there'd be fewer skulls hanging on the altar huts. But most men make noise if they wear armor. They were waiting on each side of the path without moving. And when a Pict stands motionless... The very beasts of the forest pass him without seeing him. They'd seen us crossing the river and got in their places. If they'd gone into ambush after we left the bank, I'd have had some hint of it. But they were waiting, and not even a leaf trembled. The devil himself couldn't have suspected anything. The first suspicion I had was when I heard a shaft rasp against a bow as it was pulled back. I dropped and yelled for the men behind me to drop, but they were too slow, taken by surprise like that. Most of them fell at the first volley that raked us from both sides. Some of the arrows crossed the trail and struck picks on the other side. I heard them howl. He grinned with vicious satisfaction. Such of us as were left plunged into the woods and closed with them. When I saw the others were all down or taken, I broke through and outfooted the painted devils through the darkness. They were all around me. I ran and crawled and sneaked, and sometimes I lay on my belly under the bushes while they passed me on all sides. I tried for the shore and found it lined with them, waiting for just such a move. But I'd have cut my way through and taken a chance on swimming. Only I heard the drums pounding in the village and knew they'd taken somebody alive. They were all so engrossed in Zolga's magic that I was able to climb the wall behind the altar hut. There was a warrior supposed to be watching at that point, but he was squatting behind the hut. I'm peering around the corner at the ceremony. I came up behind him and broke his neck with my hands before he knew what was happening. It was his spear I threw into the snake, and that's his axe you're carrying. 
But what was that? That thing you killed in the altar hut? asked Balthus with a shiver at the memory of the dim-seen horror. One of Zogar's gods, one of Jebel's children that didn't remember and had to be kept chained to the altar, a bull ape. The Picts think they're sacred to the hairy one who lives on the moon, the gorilla god of Gulla. It's getting light. Here's a good place to hide until we see how close they're on our trail. Probably have to wait until night to break back to the river. A low hill pitched upward, girdled and covered with thick trees and bushes. Near the crest, Conan slid into a tangle of jutting rocks, crowned by dense bushes. Lying among them, they could see the jungle below without being seen. It was a good place to hide or defend. Balthus did not believe that even a Pict could have trailed them over the rocky ground for the past four or five miles, but he was afraid of the beasts that obeyed Zogasag. His faith in the curious symbol wavered a little now, but Conan had dismissed the possibility of beasts tracking them. A ghostly whiteness spread through the dense branches. The patches of sky visible altered in hue, grew from pink to blue. Balthus felt the gnawing of hunger, though he had slaked his thirst at a stream they had skirted. There was complete silence, except for an occasional chirp of a bird. The drums were no longer to be heard. Balthus's thoughts reverted to the grim scene before the altar hut. Those were ostrich plumes Zogasag wore, he said. I've seen them on the helmets of knights who rode from the east to visit the barons of the marches. There are no ostriches in this forest, are there? They came from Cush, answered Conan. West of here, many marches, lies the seashore. Ships from Zingara occasionally come and trade weapons and ornaments and wine to the coastal tribes for skins and copper ore and gold dust. Sometimes they trade ostrich plumes they got from the Stygians, who in turn got them from the black tribes of Cush, which lies south of Stygia. The Pictish shamans place great store by them, but there's much risk in such trade. The Picts are too likely to try to seize the ship, and the coast is dangerous to ships. I've sailed along it when I was with the pirates of the Barashan Isles, which lie southwest of Zingara. Balthus looked at his companion with admiration. I knew you hadn't spent your life on this frontier. You've mentioned several far places. You've traveled widely? I've roamed far, farther than any other man of my race ever wandered. I've seen all the great cities of the Hyborians, the Shemites, the Stygians, and the Harkanians. I've roamed in the unknown countries south of the Black Kingdoms of Cush and east of the Sea of Vilayet. I've been a mercenary captain, a corsair, a Cossack, a penniless vagabond, a general. Hell, I've been everything except a king of a civilized country, and I may be that before I die. The fancy pleased him, and he grinned hardly. Then he shrugged his shoulders and stretched his mighty figure on the rocks. This is as good a life as any. I don't know how long I'll stay on the frontier. A week, a month, a year. I have a roving foot, but it's as well on the border as anywhere. Balthus set himself to watch the forest below them. Momentarily, he expected to see fierce painted faces thrust through the leaves. But as the hours passed, no stealthy footfall disturbed the brooding quiet. Balthus believed the Picts had missed their trail and given up the chase. Conan grew restless. We should have sighted parties scouring the woods for us. If they've quit the chase, it's because they're after bigger game. They may be gathering to cross the river and storm the fort. Would they come this far south if they lost the trail? They've lost the trail, all right. Otherwise, they'd have been on our necks before now. 
Under ordinary circumstances, they'd scour the woods for miles in every direction. Some of them should have passed without sight of this hill. They must be preparing to cross the river. We've got to take a chance and make for the river. Creeping down the rocks, Balthus felt his flesh crawl between his shoulders as he momentarily expected a withering blast of arrows from the green masses above them. He feared that the Picts had discovered them and were lying about in ambush. But Conan was convinced no enemies were near, and the Sumerian was right. We're miles to the south of the village, grunted Conan. We'll hit straight through for the river. I don't know how far down the river they've spread. We'll hope to hit it below them. With haste that seemed reckless to Balthus, they hurried eastward. The woods seemed empty of life. Conan believed that all the Picts were gathered in the vicinity of Gwala, if indeed they had not already crossed the river. He did not believe they would cross in daytime, however. Some woodsmen would be sure to see them and give the alarm. They'll cross above and below the fort, out of sight of the sentries. Then others will get in canoes and make straight across for the river wall. As soon as they attack, those hidden in the woods on the east shore will assail the fort. From the other sides, they've tried that before and got the guts shot and hacked out of them. But this time they've got enough men to make a real onslaught of it. They pushed on without pausing, though Balthus gazed longingly at the squirrels flitting among the branches, which he could have brought down with a cast of his axe. With a sigh, he drew up his broad belt. The everlasting silence and gloom of the primitive forest was beginning to depress him. He found himself thinking of the open groves and sun-dappled meadows of the Tauron, of the bluff cheer of his father's steep-thatched diamond-paned house, of the fat cows browsing through the deep lush grass, and the hearty fellowship of the brawny, bare-armed plowmen and herdsmen. He felt lonely in spite of his companion. Conan was as much a part of this wilderness as Balthus was alien to it. The Cimmerian might have spent years among the great cities of the world. He might have walked with the rulers of civilization. He might even achieve his wild whim some day and rule as king of a civilized nation. Stranger things had happened. But he was no less a barbarian. He was concerned only with the naked fundamentals of life, the warm intimacies of small, kindly things, the sentiments and delicious trivialities that make up so much of civilized men's lives were meaningless to him. A wolf was no less a wolf because a whim of chance caused him to run with the watchdogs. Bloodshed and violence and savagery were the natural elements of the life Conan knew. He could not and would never understand the little things that are so dear to civilized men and women. The shadows were lengthening when they reached the river and peered through the masking bushes. They could see up and down the river for about a mile each way. The sullen stream lay bare and empty. Conan scowled across at the other shore. We've got to take another chance here. We've got to swim the river. We don't know whether they've crossed or not. The woods over there may be alive with them. We've got to risk it. We're about six miles south of Gwawala. He wheeled and ducked as a bowstring twanged. Something like a white flash of light streaked through the bushes. Balthus knew it was an arrow. Then, with a tigerish-bound Conan, was through the bushes. Balthus caught the gleam of steel as he whirled his sword and heard a death scream. The next instant, he had broken through the bushes after the Cimmerian. A Pict with a shattered skull lay face down on the ground, his fingers spasmodically clawing at the grass. Half a dozen others were swarming about Conan, swords and axes lifted. 
They had cast away their bows, useless at such deadly close quarters. Their lower jaws were painted white, contrasting vividly with their dark faces, and the designs on their muscular breasts differed from any Balthus had ever seen. One of them hurled his axe at Balthus and rushed after it with lifted knife. Balthus ducked and then caught the wrist that drove the knife licking at his throat. They went to the ground together, rolling over and over. The Pict was like a wild beast, his muscles hard as steel strings. Balthus was striving to maintain his hold on the wild man's wrist and bring his own axe into play, but so fast and furious was the struggle that each attempt to strike was blocked. The Pict was wrenching furiously to free his knife hand, was clutching at Balthus's axe and driving his knees at the youth's groin. Suddenly he attempted to shift his knife to his free hand, and in that instant Balthus, struggling up on one knee, split the painted head with a desperate blow of his axe. He sprang up and glared wildly about for his companion, expecting to see him overwhelmed by numbers. Then he realized the full strength and ferocity of the Cimmerian. Conan bestrode two of his attackers, shorn half asunder by that terrible broadsword. As Balthus looked, he saw the Cimmerian beat down a thrusting shortsword, avoid the stroke of an axe with a cat-like sidewise spring, which brought him within arm's length of a squat savage, stooping for a bow. Before the pit could straighten, the red sword flailed down and clove him from shoulder to mid-breastbone, where the blade stuck. The remaining warriors rushed in, one from either side. Balthus hurled his axe with an accuracy that reduced the attackers to one, and Conan, abandoning his efforts to free his sword, wheeled and met the remaining Pict with his bare hands. The stocky warrior, a head shorter than his tall enemy, leapt in, striking with his axe, at the same time stabbing murderously with his knife. The knife broke on the Cimmerian's mail, and the axe checked in mid-air as Conan's fingers locked like iron on the descending arm. A bone snapped loudly, and Balthus saw the Pict, wince and falter. The next instant he was swept off his feet, lift high above the Cimmerian's head. He writhed in mid-air for an instant, kicking and thrashing, and then was dashed headlong to the earth with such force that he rebounded, and then lay still, his limp posture telling of splintered limbs and a broken spine. Come on, Conan wrenched his sword free and snatched up an axe. Grab a bow and a handful of arrows, and hurry, we've got to trust to our heels again. That yell was heard. They'll be here in no time. If we tried to swim now, they'd feather us with arrows before we reached midstream. Chapter 6 Conan did not plunge deeply into the forest. A few hundred yards from the river, he altered his slanting course and ran parallel with it. Balthus recognized a grim determination not to be hunted away from the river, which they must cross if they were to warn the men in the fort. Behind them rose more loudly the yells of the forest men. Balthus believed the picks had reached the glade where the bodies of the slain men lay. Then further yells seemed to indicate that the savages were streaming into the woods in pursuit. They had left a trail any Pict could follow. Conan increased his speed, and Balthus grimly set his teeth and kept on his heels, though he felt he might collapse any time. It seemed centuries since he had eaten last. He kept going more by an effort of will than anything else. His blood was pounding so furiously in his eardrums that he was not aware when the yells died out behind them. Conan halted suddenly. Balthus leaned against a tree and panted. 
They've quit, grunted Sumerian, scowling. Sneaking up on us, gasped Balthus. Conan shook his head. A short chase like this, they'd yell every step of the way. No, they've gone back. I thought I heard somebody yelling behind them a few seconds before the noise began to get dimmer. They've been recalled, and that's good for us, but damn bad for the men in the fort. It means the warriors are being summoned out of the woods for the attack. Those men we ran into were warriors from a tribe down the river. They were undoubtedly headed for Gwala to join in the assault on the fort. Damn it, we're farther away than ever now. We've got to get across the river. Turning east, he hurried through the thickets with no attempt at concealment. Balthus followed him, for the first time feeling the sting of lacerations on his breast and shoulder where the pick's savage teeth had scored him. He was pushing through the thick bushes that hinged the bank when Conan pulled him back. Then he heard a rhythmic splashing and peering through the leaves, saw a dugout canoe coming up the river, its single occupant paddling hard against the current. He was a strongly built Pict, with a white heron feather thrust in a copper band that confined his square-cut mane. That's a Guawela man, muttered Conan, emissary from Zogar. White plume shows that. He's carried a peace talk to the tribes down the river, and now he's trying to get back and take a hand in the slaughter. The lone ambassador was now almost even with their hiding place, and suddenly Balthus almost jumped out of his skin. At his very ear had sounded the harsh gutturals of a Pict. Then he realized that Conan had called to the paddler in his own tongue. The man started, scanned the bushes and called back something, then cast a startled glance across the river, bent low and sent the canoes shooting in toward the western bank. Not understanding, Balthus saw Conan take from his hand the bow he had picked up in the glade and notch an arrow. The Pict had run his canoe in close to the shore and, staring up into the bushes, called out something. His answer came in the twang of the bowstring, the streaking flight of the arrow that sank to the feathers in his broad breast. With a choking gasp, he slumped sidewise and rolled into the shallow water. In an instant, Conan was down the bank and wading into the water to grasp the drifting canoe. Alpha stumbled after him and somewhat dazedly crawled into the canoe. Conan scrambled in, seized the paddle, and sent the craft shooting toward the eastern shore. Balthus noted with envious admiration the play of the great muscles beneath the sunburnt skin. The Cimmerian seemed an iron man who never knew fatigue. What did you say to the Pict? asked Balthus. Told him to pull into shore, said there was a white forest runner on the bank who was trying to get a shot at him. That doesn't seem fair, Balthus objected. He thought a friend was speaking to him. You mimicked a Pict perfectly. We needed his boat, grunted Conan, not pausing in his exertions. Only way to lure him to the bank, which is worse, to betray a Pict who'd enjoy skinning us both alive, or betray the men across the river whose lives depend on our getting over. Balthus mulled over this delicate, ethical question for a moment, then shrugged his shoulders and asked, How far are we from the fort? Conan pointed to a creek which flowed into Black River from the east, a few hundred yards below them. That's South Creek. It's ten miles from its mouth to the fort. It's the southern boundary of Kanajahara, marshes miles wide south of it. No danger of a raid from across them. Nine miles above the Fort North Creek forms the other boundary, marshes beyond that too. That's why an attack must come from the west, across Black River. Kanajahara's just like a spear, 
with a point nineteen miles wide, thrust into the Pictish wilderness. Why don't we keep to the canoe and make the trip by water? Because, considering the current we've got to brace, and the bends in the river, we can go faster afoot. Besides, remember Gwalder is south of the fort. If the picks are crossing the river, we'd run right into them. Dusk was gathering as they stepped upon the eastern bank. Without pause, Conan pushed on northward, at a pace that made Balthus's sturdy legs ache. Philanus wanted a fort built at the mouths of north and south creeks, grunted the Sumerian. Then the river could be patrolled constantly, but the government wouldn't do it. Soft-bellied fools, sitting on velvet cushions with naked girls, offering them iced wine on their knees. I know the breed. They can't see any farther than their palace wall. Diplomacy. Hell, they'd fight picks with theories of territorial expansion. Philanus and men like him have to obey the orders of a set of damn fools. They'll never grab any more Pictish land any more than they'll ever rebuild Venarium. The time may come when they'll see the barbarians swarming over the walls of the eastern cities. A week before, Balthus would have laughed at any such preposterous suggestion. Now he made no reply. He had seen the unconquerable ferocity of the men who dwelt beyond the frontiers. He shivered, casting glances at the sullen river, just visible through the bushes, at the arches of the trees which crowded close to its banks. He kept remembering that the Picts might have crossed the river and be lying in ambush between them and the fort. It was fast growing dark. A slight sound ahead of them jumped his heart into his throat, and Conan's sword gleamed in the air. He lowered it when a dog, a great gaunt, scarred beast, slunk out of the bushes and stood staring at them. That dog belonged to a settler who tried to build his cabin on the bank of the river a few miles south of the fort, grunted Conan. The pick slipped over and killed him, of course, and burned his cabin. We found him dead among the embers, and the dog lying senseless among three picks he'd kill. He was almost cut to pieces. We took him to the fort and dressed his wounds, but after he recovered he took to the woods and turned wild. What now, Slasher? Are you hunting the men who killed your master? The massive head swung from side to side, and the eyes glowed greenly. He did not growl or bark. Silently as a phantom, he slid in behind them. Let him come, muttered Conan. He can smell the devils before we can see them. Bartha smiled and laid his hand caressingly on the dog's head. The lips involuntarily writhed back to display the gleaming fangs. Then the great beast bent his head sheepishly, and his tail moved with jerky uncertainty, as if the owner had almost forgotten the emotions of friendliness. Balthus mentally compared the great gaunt hard body with the fat sleek hounds tumbling vociferously over one another in his father's kennel yard. He sighed. The frontier was no less hard for beasts than for men. This dog had almost forgotten the meaning of kindness and friendliness. Slasher glided ahead, and Conan let him take the lead. The last tinge of dusk faded into stark darkness. The miles fell away under their steady feet. Slasher seemed voiceless. Suddenly he halted, tense, ears lifted. An instant later the men heard it, a demoniac yelling up the river ahead of them, faint as a whisper. Conan swore like a madman. They've attacked the fort, but too late. Come on. He increased his pace, trusting to the dog to smell out ambushes ahead. In a flood of tense excitement, Balthus forgot his hunger and weariness. 
The yells grew louder as they advanced, and above the devilish screaming they could hear the deep shouts of the soldiers. Just as Balthus began to fear they would run into the savages, who seemed to be howling just ahead of them, Conan swung away from the river in a wide semicircle that carried them to a low rise from which they could look over the forest. They saw the fort, lighted with torches thrust over the parapets on long poles. These cast a flickering uncertain light over the clearing, and in that light they saw throngs of naked painted figures along the fringe of the clearing. The river swarmed with canoes. The pits had the fort completely surrounded. An incessant hail of arrows rained against the stockade from the woods and the river. The deep twanging of the bowstrings rose above the howling. Yelling like wolves, several hundred naked warriors with axes in their hands ran from under the trees and raced toward the eastern gate. They were within a hundred and fifty yards of their objective when a withering blast of arrows from the wall littered the ground with corpses and sent the survivors fleeing back to the trees. The men in the canoes rushed their boats toward the river wall and were met by another shower of clothyard shafts and a volley from the small ballistae mounted on towers on that side of the stockade. Stones and logs whirled through the air and splintered and sank half a dozen canoes, killing their occupants, and the other boats drew back out of range. A deep roar of triumph rose from the walls of the fort, answered by bestial howling from all quarters. "'Shall we try to break through?' asked Balthus, trembling with eagerness. Conan shook his head. He stood with his arms folded, his head slightly bent, a somber and brooding figure. The fort's doomed. The picks are blood-mad and won't stop until they're all killed, and there are too many of them for the men in the fort to kill. We couldn't break through, and if we did, we could do nothing but die with Valanus. There's nothing we can do but save our own hides, then. Yes, we've got to warn the settlers. Do you know why the picks are not trying to burn the fort with fire arrows? Because they don't want a flame that might warm the people to the east. They plan to stamp out the fort and then sweep east before anyone knows of its fall. They may cross Thunder River and take Velitrium before the people know what's happened. At least they'll destroy every living thing between the fort and Thunder River. We failed to warn the fort, and I see now it would have done no good if we had succeeded. The fort's too poorly manned. A few more charges and the picks will be over the walls and breaking down the gates. But we can start the settlers toward Velitrium. Come on, we're outside the circle the picks have thrown around the fort. We'll keep clear of it. They swung out in a wide arc, hearing the rising and falling of the volume of the yells, marking each charge and repulse. The men in the fort were holding their own, but the shrieks of the picks did not diminish in savagery. They vibrated with a timber that held assurance of ultimate victory. Before Balthus realized they were close to it, they broke into the road leading east. Now run, grunted Conan. Balthus set his teeth. It was nineteen miles to Velitrium, a good five to Scalp Creek beyond which began the settlements. It seemed to the Aquilonian that they had been fighting and running for centuries. But the nervous excitement that rioted through his blood stimulated him to Herculean efforts. Slasher ran ahead of them, his head to the ground, snarling low, the first sound they had heard from him. Picks ahead of us, snarled Conan dropping to one knee and scanning the ground in the starlight. He shook his head, baffled. I can't tell how many, probably only a small party, some that couldn't wait to take the fort. They've gone ahead to butcher the settlers in their beds. Come on! 
Ahead of them presently, they saw a small blaze through the trees and heard a wild and ferocious chanting. The trail bent there, and leaving it, they cut across the bend, through the thickets. A few moments later, they were looking on a hideous sight. An ox wain stood in the road, piled with meagre household furnishings. It was burning. The oxen lay near with their throats cut. A man and a woman lay in the road, stripped and mutilated. Five picks were dancing about them with fantastic leaps and bounds, waving bloody axes. One of them brandished the woman's red-smeared gown. At the sight, a red haze swam before Balthus. Lifting his bow, he lined the prancing figure black against the fire and loosed. The slayer leapt convulsively and fell dead with the arrow through his heart. Then the two white men and the dog were upon the startled survivors. Conan was animated merely by his fighting spirit and an old, old racial hate, but Balthus was afire with wrath. He met the first picked to oppose him with a ferocious swipe that split the painted skull and sprang over his failing body to grapple with the others. But Conan had already killed one of the two he had chosen, and the leap of the Aquilonian was a second late. The warrior was down with the longsword through him, even as Balthus's axe was lifted. Turning toward the remaining picked, Balthus saw Slasher rise from his victim, his great jaws dripping blood. Balthus said nothing as he looked down at the pitiful forms in the road beside the burning wain. Both were young, the woman little more than a girl. By some whim of chance, the picks had left her face unmarred, and even in the agonies of an awful death, it was beautiful. But her soft young body had been hideously slashed with many knives. A mist clouded Balthus's eyes, and he swallowed chokingly. The tragedy momentarily overcame him. He felt like falling upon the ground and weeping and biting the earth. Some young couple just hitting out on their own, Conan was saying, as he wiped his sword unemotionally, on their way to the fort when the picks met them. Maybe the boy was going to enter the service, maybe take up land on the river. Well, that's what will happen to every man, woman, and child this side of Thunder River if we don't get them into Velitrium in a hurry. Balthus's knees trembled as he followed Conan, but there was no hint of weakness in the long, easy stride of the Cimmerian. There was a kinship between him and the great gaunt brute that glided beside him. Slasher no longer growled with his head to the trail. The way was clear before them. The yelling on the river came faintly to them, but Balthus believed the fort was still holding. Conan halted suddenly with an oath. He showed Balthus a trail that led north from the road. It was an old trail partly grown with new young growth, and this growth had recently been broken down. Balthus realized this fact more by feel than sight, though Conan seemed to see like a cat in the dark. The Cimmerian showed him where broad wagon tracks turned off the main trail, deeply indented in the forest mold. Settlers going to the licks after salt, he grunted. They're at the edges of the marsh, about nine miles from here. Blast it. They'll be cut off and butchered to a man. Listen, one man can warn the people on the road. Go ahead and wake them up and herd them into Velitrium. I'll go and get the men gathering the salt. They'll be camped by the licks. We won't come back to the road. We'll head straight through the woods. With no further comment, Conan turned off the trail and hurried down the dim path, and Balthus, after staring after him for a few moments, set out along the road. The dog had remained with him and glided softly at his heels. When Balthus had gone a few rods, he heard the animal growl, 
Whirling, he glared back the way he had come and was startled to see a vague ghostly glow vanishing into the forest in the direction Conan had taken. Slasher rumbled deep in his throat, his hackles stiff and his eyes balls of green fire. Balthus remembered the grim apparition that had taken the head of the merchant Tiberius not far from that spot, and he hesitated. The thing must be following Conan. But the giant Cimmerian had repeatedly demonstrated his ability to take care of himself, and Balthus felt his duty lay toward the helpless settlers who slumbered in the path of the Red Hurricane. The horror of the fiery phantom was overshadowed by the horror of those limp, violated bodies beside the burning oxway. He hurried down the road, crossed Scalp Creek, and came in sight of the first settler's cabin, a long, low structure of axe-hewn logs. In an instant, he was pounding on the door. A sleepy voice inquired his pleasure. Get up! The pigs are over the river! That brought instant response. A low cry echoed his words, and then the door was thrown open by a woman in a scanty shift. Her hair hung over her bare shoulders in disorder. She held a candle in one hand and an axe in the other. Her face was colorless, her eyes wide with terror. Come in! she begged. We'll hold the cabin. No, we must make for Valitrium. The fort can't hold them back. It may have fallen already. Don't stop to dress. Get your children and come on. But my man's gone with the others after salt, she wailed, wringing her hands. Behind her peered three tousled youngsters, blinking and bewildered. Conan's gone after them. He'll fetch them through safe. We must hurry up the road to warn the other cabins. Relief flooded her countenance. Mitra be thanked, she cried. If the Cimmerian's gone after them, they're safe. If mortal man can save them... In a whirlwind of activity, she snatched up the smallest child and herded the others through the door ahead of her. Balthus took the candle and ground it out under his heel. He listened an instant. No sound came up the dark road. Have you got a horse? In the stable, she groaned. Oh, hurry! He pushed her aside as she fumbled with shaking hands at the bars. He led the horse out and lifted the children on its back, telling them to hold to its mane and to one another. They stared at him seriously, making no outcry. The woman took the horse's halter and set out up the road. She still gripped her axe and Balthus knew that if cornered, she would fight with the desperate courage of a she-panther. He held behind, listening, he was oppressed by the belief that the fort had been stormed and taken, that the dark-skinned hordes were already streaming up the road toward Velitrium, drunken on slaughter and mad for blood. They would come with the speed of starving wolves. Presently they saw another cabin looming ahead. The woman started to shriek a warning, but Balthus stopped her. He hurried to the door and knocked. A woman's voice answered him. He repeated his warning, and soon the cabin disgorged its occupants. An old woman, two young women, and four children. Like the other woman's husband, their men had gone to the salt licks the day before, unsuspecting of any danger. One of the young women seemed dazed, the other prone to hysteria. But the old woman, a stern old veteran of the frontier, quieted them harshly. She helped Balthus get out the two horses that were stabled in a pen behind the cabin and put the children on them. Balthus urged that she herself mount with them, but she shook her head and made one of the younger women ride. She's with child, grunted the old woman. I can walk, and fight too, if it comes to that. As they set out, one of the young women said, 
A young couple passed along the road about dusk. We advised them to spend the night at our cabin, but they were anxious to make the fort tonight. Did, did, did. They met the picks, answered Balthus briefly, and the woman sobbed in horror. They were scarcely out of sight of the cabin when some distance behind them quavered a long, high-pitched yell. A wolf, exclaimed one of the women. A painted wolf with an axe in his hand, muttered Balthus. Go, rouse the other settlers along the road and take them with you. I'll scout along behind. Without a word, the old woman herded her charges ahead of her. As they faded into the darkness, Bathos could see the pale ovals that were the faces of the children twisted back over their shoulders to stare toward him. He remembered his own people on the Tehran, and a moment's giddy sickness swam over him. With momentary weakness, he groaned and sank down in the road. His muscular arm fell over Slash's massive neck, and he felt the dog's warm, moist tongue touch his face. He lifted his head and grinned with a painful effort. Come on, boy, he mumbled, rising. We've got work to do. A red glow suddenly became evident through the trees. The picks had fired the last hut. He grinned. How Zogasag would froth if he knew his warriors had let their destructive natures get the better of them. The fire would warn the people farther up the road. They would be awake and alert when the fugitives reached them. But his face grew grim. The women were travelling slowly, on foot and on the overloaded horses. The swift-footed picks would run them down within a mile, unless he took his position behind a tangle of fallen logs beside the trail. The road west of him was lighted by the burning cabin, and when the picks came he saw them first, black furtive figures etched against the distant glare. Drawing a shaft to the head, he loosed, and one of the figures crumpled. The rest melted into the woods on either side of the road. Slasher whimpered with the killing lust beside him. Suddenly a figure appeared on the fringe of the trail under the trees and began gliding toward the fallen timbers. Balthus's bowstring twanged and the picked yelped, staggered and fell into the shadows with the arrow through his thigh. Slasher cleared the timbers with a bound and leapt into the bushes. They were violently shaken and then the dog slunk back to Balthus's side, his jaws crimson. No more appeared in the trail. Balthus began to fear they were stealing past his position through the woods, and when he heard a faint sound to his left, he loosed blindly. He cursed as he heard the shaft splinter against a tree, but Slasher glided away as silently as a phantom, and presently Balthus heard a thrashing and a gurgling. Then Slasher came like a ghost through the bushes, snuggling his great crimson-stained head against Balthus's arm. Blood oozed from a gash in his shoulder but the sounds in the wood had ceased forever. The men lurking on the edges of the road evidently sensed the fate of their companion and decided that an open charge was preferable to being dragged down in the dark by a devil beast they could neither see nor hear. Perhaps they realized that only one man lay behind the logs. They came with a sudden rush, breaking cover from both sides of the trail. Three dropped with arrows through them, and the remaining pair hesitated. One turned and ran back down the road, but the other lunged over the breastwork, his eyes and teeth gleaming in the dim light, his axe lifted. Balthus's foot slipped as he sprang up, but the slip saved his life. The descending axe shaved a lock of hair from his head, and the pict rolled down the logs from the force of his wasted blow. Before he could regain his feet, Slasher tore his throat out. Then followed a tense period of waiting, 
in which time Balthus wondered if the man who had fled had been the only survivor of the party. Obviously, it had been a small band that had either left the fighting at the fort or were scouting ahead of the main body. Each moment that passed increased the chances for safety of the women and children hurrying toward Velitrium. Then without warning, a shower of arrows whistled over his retreat. A wild howling rose from the woods along the trail. Either the survivor had gone after aid or another party had joined the first. The burning cabin still smouldered, lending a little light. Then they were after him, gliding through the trees beside the trail. He shot three arrows and threw the bow away. As if sensing his plight, they came on, not yelling now, but in deadly silence except for a swift pad of many feet. He fiercely hugged the head of the great dog growling at his side, muttered, All right, boy, give him hell, and sprang to his feet, drawing his axe. Then the dark figures flooded over the breastworks and closed in a storm of flailing axes, stabbing knives and ripping fangs. Chapter 7 When Conan turned from the Velitrium Road, he expected a run of some nine miles and set himself to the task but he had not gone four when he heard the sounds of a party of men ahead of him. From the noise they were making in their progress, he knew they were not pits. He hailed them. Who's there? challenged a harsh voice. Stand where you are until we know you, or you'll get an arrow through you. You couldn't hit an elephant in this darkness, answered Conan impatiently. Come on, fool. It's I, Conan. The picks are over the river. We suspected as much, answered the leader of the men, as they strode forward, tall, rangy men, stern-faced, with bows in their hands. One of our party wounded an antelope and tracked it nearly to Black River. He heard them yelling down the river and ran back to our camp. We left the salt on the wagons, turned the oxen loose and came as swiftly as we could. If the picks are besieging the fort, war parties will be ranging up the road toward our cabins. Your families are safe grunted Conan. My companion went ahead to take them to Velitrium. If we go back to the main road, we may run into the whole horde. We'll strike southeast through the timber. Go ahead. I'll scout behind. A few moments later, the whole band was hurrying southeastward. Conan followed more slowly, keeping just within earshot. He cursed the noise they were making. That many Picts or Cimmerians would have moved through the woods with no more noise than the wind makes as it blows through the black branches. He had just crossed a small glade when he wheeled, answering the conviction of his primitive instincts that he was being followed. Standing motionless among the bushes, he heard the sounds of the retreating settlers fade away. Then a voice called faintly back along the way he had come. Conan! Conan! Wait for me, Conan! Balthus. He swore bewilderedly. Cautiously, he called. Here I am! Wait for me, Conan. A voice came more distinctly. Conan moved out of the shadows, scowling. What the devil are you doing here? Crom! He half crouched, the flesh prickling along his spine. It was not Balthus who was emerging from the other side of the glade. A weird glow burned through the trees. It moved toward him, shimmering weirdly a green witch-fire that moved with purpose and intent. It halted some feet away, and Conan glared at it, trying to distinguish its fire-misted outlines. The quivering flame had a solid core. The flame was but a green garment that masked some animate and evil entity, but the Cimmerian was unable to make out its shape or likeness. Then, shockingly, 
a voice spoke to him from amidst the fiery column. Why do you stand like a sheep waiting for the butcher, Conan? The voice was human, but carried strange vibrations that were not human. Sheep, Conan's wrath got the best of his momentary awe. Do you think I'm afraid of a damned Pictish swamp devil? A friend called me. I called in his voice, answered the other. The men you follow belong to my brother. I would not rob his knife of their blood, but you are mine. Oh, fool, you have come from the far grey hills of Cimmeria to meet your doom in the forests of Konajohara. You've had your chance of me before now, snorted Conan. Why didn't you kill me then if you could? My brother had not painted a skull black for you and hurled it into the fire that burns forever on Gulla's black altar. He had not whispered your name to the black ghosts that haunt the uplands of the dark land. But a bat has flown over the mountains of the dead and drawn your image in blood on the white tiger's hide that hangs before the long hut where sleep the four brothers of the night. The great serpents coil about their feet, and the stars burn like fireflies in their hair. Why have the gods of darkness doomed me to death? growled Conan. Something, a hand, foot or talon, he could not tell which, thrust out from the fire and marked swiftly on the mould. A symbol blazed there, marked with fire and faded, but not before he recognised it. You dared make the sign, which only a priest of Jebel Sag dare make. Thunder rumbled through the black mountain of the dead, and the altar hut of Gullah was thrown down by a wind from the Gulf of Ghosts. The loon, which is messenger to the four brothers of the night, flew swiftly and whispered your name in my ear. Your race is run. You are a dead man already. Your head will hang in the altar hut of my brother. Your body will be eaten by the black-winged, sharp-beaked children of Jile. Who the devil is your brother? demanded Conan. His sword was naked in his hand, and he was subtly loosening the axe in his belt. Zogasag, a child of Jebelsag who still visits his sacred groves at times. A woman of Gorwela slept in a grove holy to Jebelsag. Her babe was Zogasag. I too am a son of Jebelsag, out of a fire being from a far realm. Zogasag summoned me out of the misty lands, with incantations and... Sorcery in his own blood, he materialized me in the flesh of his own planet. We are one, tied together by invisible threads. His thoughts are my thoughts. If he is struck, I am bruised. If I am cut, he bleeds. But I have talked enough. Soon your ghost will talk with the ghosts of the Darkland, and they will tell you of the old gods which are not dead, but sleep in the outer abysses, and from time to time awake. I'd like to see what you look like muttered Conan, working his axe free. You who leave a track like a bird, who burn like a flame, and yet speak with a human voice. You shall see, answered the voice from the flame. See, and carry the knowledge with you into the dark land. The flames leapt and sank, dwindling and dimming. A face began to take shadowy form. At first Conan thought it was Zogar, Sag himself, who stood wrapped in green fire. But the face was higher than his own, and there was a demoniac aspect about it. Conan had noted various abnormalities about Zogasag's features. An obliqueness of the eyes, a sharpness of the ears, a wolfish thinness of the lips. These peculiarities were exaggerated in the apparition which swayed before him. The eyes were red as coals of living fire. More details came into view. 
a slender torso covered with snaky scales which was yet man-like in shape, with man-like arms from the waist upward. Below, long crane-like legs ended in splay three-toed feet like those of huge bird. Along the monstrous limbs, the blue fire fluttered and ran. He saw it as through a glistening mist. Then suddenly it was towering over him, though he had not seen it move toward him. A long arm, which for the first time he noticed was armed with curving, sickle-like talons, swung high and swept down at his neck. With a fierce cry, he broke the spell and bounded aside, hurling his axe. The demon avoided the cast with an unbelievably quick movement of its narrow head and was on him again with a hissing rush of leaping flames. But fear had fought for it when it slew its other victims, and Conan was not afraid. He knew that any being clothed in material flesh could be slain by material weapons, however grisly its form may be. One flailing talon-armed limb knocked his helmet from his head, a little lower, and it would have decapitated him, but fierce joy surged through him as his savagely driven sword sank deep in the monster's groin. He bounded backward from a flailing stroke, tearing his sword free as he leapt. The talons raked his breast, ripping through male links as if they had been cloth. But his return spring was like that of a starving wolf. He was inside the lashing arms and driving his sword deep in the monster's belly, felt the arms lock about him and the talons ripping the mail from his back as they sought his vitals. He was lapped and dazzled by blue flame that was chill as ice. Then he had torn fiercely away from the weakening arms and his sword cut the air in a tremendous swipe. The demon staggered and fell sprawling sidewise, its head hanging only by a shred of flesh, the fires that veiled it leaped fiercely upward, now red as gushing blood, hiding the figure from view. A scent of burning flesh filled Conan's nostrils. Shaking the blood and sweat from his eyes, he wheeled and ran staggering through the woods. Blood trickled down his limbs. Somewhere, miles to the south, he saw the faint glow of flames that might mark a burning cabin. Behind him, toward the road, rose a distant howling that spurred him to greater efforts. Chapter 8 There had been fighting on Thunder River, fierce fighting before the walls of Velitrium. Axe and torch had been plied up and down the bank, and many a settler's cabin lay in ashes before the painted horde was rolled back. A strange quiet followed the storm, in which people gathered and talked in hushed voices, and men with red-stained bandages drank their ale silently in the taverns along the riverbank. There, to Conan the Cimmerian, Moodily quaffing from a great wine glass, came a gaunt forester with a bandage about his head and his arm in a sling. He was the one survivor of Fort Tuscalan. You went with the soldiers to the ruins of the fort? Conan nodded. I wasn't able, murmured the other. There was no fighting. The Picts had fallen back across Black River. Something must have broken their nerve, though only the devil who made them knows what. The woodsman glanced at his bandaged arm and sighed. They say there were no bodies worth disposing of. Conan shook his head. Ashes, the picks, had piled them in the fort and set fire to the fort before they crossed the river, their own dead and the men of Valanus. Valanus was killed among the last, in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting when they broke the barriers. They tried to take him alive, but he made them kill him. They took ten of the rest of us prisoners when we were so weak from fighting, we could fight no more. 
They butchered nine of us then and there. It was when Zogasag died that I got my chance to break free and run for it. Zogasag's dead, ejaculated Conan. Aye, I saw him die. That's why the Picts didn't press the fight against Velitrium as fiercely as they did against the fort. It was strange. He took no wounds in battle. He was dancing among the slain, waving an axe with which he'd just brained the last of my comrades. He came at me howling like a wolf, and then he staggered and dropped the axe and began to reel in a circle screaming as I never heard a man or beast scream before. He fell between me and the fire they'd built to roast me, gagging and frothing at the mouth, and all at once he went rigid and the pick shouted that he was dead. It was during the confusion that I slipped my cords and ran for the woods. I saw him lying in the firelight. No weapon had touched him, yet there were red marks like the wounds of a sword in the groin, belly and neck, the last as if his head had been almost severed from his body. What do you make of that? Conan made no reply, and the forester, aware of the reticence of barbarians on certain matters, continued. He lived by magic, and somehow he died by magic. It was the mystery of his death that took the heart out of the picks. Not a man who saw it was in the fighting before Velitrium. They hurried back across Black River. Those that struck Thunder River were warriors who had come on before Zogar Sag died. They were not enough to take the city by themselves. I came along the road behind their main force, and I know none followed me from the fort. I sneaked through their lines and got into the town. You brought the settlers through, all right, but their women and children got into Velitrium just ahead of those painted devils. If the youth, Balthus and old Slasher, hadn't held them up a while, they'd have butchered every woman and child in Conajahara. I passed the place where Balthus and the dog made their last stand. They were lying amid a heap of dead picks. I counted seven, brained by his axe or disemboweled by the dog's fangs, and there were others in the road with arrows sticking in them. Gods, what a fight that must have been. He was a man, said Conan. I drink to his shade and to the shade of the dog, who knew no fear. He quaffed part of the wine, then emptied the rest upon the floor with a curious heathen gesture and smashed the goblet. The heads of ten picks shall pay for his, and seven heads for the dog, who was a better warrior than many a man. And the forester, staring into the moody, smouldering blue eyes, knew the barbaric oath would be kept. They'll not rebuild the fort. No. Kanajahara is lost to Aquilonia. The frontier has been pushed back. Thunder River will be the new border. The woodsman sighed and stared at his calloused hand, worn from contact with axe haft and sword hilt. Conan reached his long arm for the wine jug. The forester stared at him, comparing him with the men about them, the men who had died along the lost river, comparing him with those other wild men over that river. Conan did not seem aware of his gaze. Barbarism is the natural state of mankind, the borderer said, still staring somberly at the Cimmerian. Civilization is unnatural, it is a whim of circumstance, and barbarism must always ultimately triumph. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 